morning. Good, morning. Good to see everybody again. We'll finish up our little series on Second Peter here. If you will open up to Second Peter, chapter one. We've been making our way through this first chapter, and really only the first um, nine or so verses, nine or ten verses. And just by way of getting us uh, into this, uh, just a couple of reminders. You know, Second Peter is his last letter there. At the uh, mid part of chapter one, he says that he knows that the time of his putting off of his physical body is, is at hand. The Lord had revealed that to him. So Peter knows he's at the end of his earthly life. He's at the end of his ministry. And so as he writes this letter, he is writing, as he says, to remind them of some of the things that are most important that he wants them to remember after he is gone to be with the Lord. And so... Um, this second Peter uh, letter, uh, in my mind, fits really well with First Peter. They they interact. There's a lot of things going on in First Peter that are completed in Second Peter, and and we may touch on some of those this morning. But uh, the thing that we've been focusing on um, is there in the first eleven verses of Second Peter chapter one, and and uh, just really quick review. The first part of this, Peter talks about everything that's been granted to us by God's gracious provision. So we have obtained a faith. We've been allotted a faith of equal standing with Peter and the other apostles there. Uh, Then in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that comes to us through the rich personal knowledge of Him who called us uh, to His own glory and excellence. And that's uh, talking about Jesus. And, and Jesus is also granted to us His precious and very great promises so that we may become partakers of the divine nature. So the, the first part is about everything that's been granted to us. And the central reality there is, is that all these things have come to us through this deep personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Not just knowing things about Jesus, but knowing Jesus in a deep personal way, right? Having a, having a real experience of the person who is Jesus. And so uh, as, as we have that, Peter goes on in verse 5, and this is where we spent last week. He gives this list of seven virtues, if I could call them that, that he wants us to add to the faith, to our faith that's been allotted to us, granted to us. So verse 5, let's, let's pick up in verse 5, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. He says, uh, so now for this reason, in other words, because God has granted us all of these blessings, right? All things pertain to life and godliness so that through our deep, rich knowledge of Jesus and his precious promises, we might become partakers of the divine nature. He says, for this very reason, make every effort. Uh, And let me just stop there for a minute. I I didn't say a lot about this uh, last week when we started here. For this reason, make every effort to uh, supplement your faith or add to your faith. The, the, word, the word that Peter uh, uses here to add to, to supplement, it's, it's a really interesting combination of words. Uh, the first thing is where he says, make every effort. In my translation, I don't know what your translation has here, but the idea is work hard at it. Right? Make every effort. Do everything you can to do this. And this brings up a huge idea that, that 
particularly within evangelical circles, it, it, we start talking in this direction and people get all bent out of shape, you know, if we don't really understand what we're talking about. But it's this, it's this um, cooperation between God's grace and empowerment and our effort, right? And, and a lot of times we, we confuse the idea that the things that God has freely given to us in His grace, which, which are there, are just going to kind of automagically happen <laughs> in our lives, right? Peter doesn't believe that, right? The things that God has granted to us, it takes a lot of effort to work out on our part. In other words, it's hard to be a follower of Jesus, and you're going to have to put some effort into it, right? And what, one of the things that, that I love in that, uh, again, I've talked about Dallas Willard several times, but one of Dallas Willard's uh, statements on that, he says, grace always stands contrary to earning, but never contrary to effort, right? Grace stands contrary to earning. You, you can't earn God's favor, but it doesn't stand contrary to actually working it out in your life. And this is where we get into that mysterious, you know, how does God's work work within us? I don't know, right? All I know is it's hard to be a follower of Jesus and it takes effort. And if you don't wake up in the morning with some sense of that struggle in your, in your head, in your mind, in your thoughts, I mean, I do. I think about the day before me and I think, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, give me the ability not to cuss somebody out, kill somebody, or just be a generally bad person, right? Because uh, my inclinations, that's where I want to go, right? Especially living in Memphis, Tennessee, the minute you get on any freeway, murder is on your mind. <laughs> Jesus, help me, right? I got to, you know, right? So it's that struggle. And so God's grace has worked out in our effort. Well, uh, Paul, um, Paul let, let me just, uh, I didn't mean to get in this, but let me just show you one thing that when I saw this for the first time, and it really clicked in terms of what Paul was saying, I thought, oh, there it is right there. Look over to 1 Corinthians 15, just for a second with me. First, um, 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, this is, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start right in verse 8. Let me start in verse 8. This is where Paul is giving the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, right? The appearances that give witness to the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so he, he lists all the important people, uh, the 12, James, the other apostles. And then verse 8, he talks about himself. And he says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, um, he also appeared to me. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But verse 10, look at this, so powerful. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. You see that? It's God's gracious provision that's made Paul who he is, and that's what's caused him to work harder than anybody else. <laughs> now, imagine writing that about yourself, right? Uh, it's really interesting. And if, if you read the larger context, you get the idea of what Paul's saying there. But you can see 
that uh, Paul works very hard and he says, it's not me, but the grace of God that works within me. Uh, in Colossians 1, uh, similar thing. Uh, Paul says that by the grace of God, uh, we should work ourselves uh, to the bone, right? Just to work ourselves to utter weariness through God's provision to do the things that he's called us to do. And so this, this thing that, that um, Peter says back in 2 Peter chapter 1 there, make every uh, effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Do whatever you can, work at it, right? This is not an easy thing to do. And so I, I don't want to give that idea that, that this uh, uh, living out and applying this list, trying to do these things are easy. We have to work at it, right? And so then he says, and so make every effort to supplement. Uh, and that word to supplement there, we actually get our word chorus from it, right? So you think of a chorus of voices, right? Multiple voices together singing the same song is the idea there. But, but even more than that, um, uh, the word uh, points to somebody who would have been a benefactor uh, to help others accomplish the goals that they were trying to do in Greek culture and whatnot. So here, the idea of supplementing, adding to, right? I add this chorus to your faith here. And so these seven virtues fill out what our faith is. And so he lists them. And we talked about the first four last week. So add to or supplement your faith with uh, excellence, moral excellence. Um, is, is two of the ways that you could translate that word. We talked about that last week. It's the same word that's used at the end of verse 3 that Jesus has called us either by or to His own glory and excellence, right? And we, we talked about the fact that this is doing everything with the view towards doing it as best we can. Excellence, the pursuit of excellence. Um, moral excellence. It, it, I was struggling with this for years, and, and this week, it, it hit me that when we look at the overall scope of the Scriptures, if we do things without pursuing excellence, that's actually immorality. Because it's not doing things the way God Himself would do things. Right? Now, my, my, my grandfather had a word for what was not pursuing things by excellence, and it only involved half of your body. And if you don't know that saying, I'm not going to repeat it here, right? But it's, when we pursue excellence, we're putting everything we've got into something, right? Not just half of something in, right? And that's the way we want to pursue excellence, because that's what Jesus did. Uh, when Jesus came, He did everything with excellence, so that nobody could question, right? He, he, didn't, he didn't, you know... Uh, take half measures. He went fully into his pursuit of excellence, and that's one of the things that he calls us to do. To your excellence, moral excellence, add knowledge, right? We want to be growing in knowledge, uh, knowing the things that we need to know. And, and to me, this one is so important in the sense of the first foundation of that is to have biblical knowledge, right? Knowing the way things actually are. Knowing the scriptures uh, helps us understand what is really real, what's happening in reality. And again, we could spend all kind of time talking about that one. Uh, to knowledge, add self-control. Talked about self-control last week. This is uh, being able to uh, get your passions under control. Uh, Jesus is, is a great example of this in John. He says, listen, I didn't come to do what I want to do. I came to do what my Father wants me to do. So he was always submitting himself to the will of the Father. And that's what made him completely free and completely powerful. Because the Father knows best. 
He trusted the wisdom of his father, even doing the things that he didn't want to do, like the cross. Three times he prays, Father, if we can figure out some other way, let's do that. Nevertheless, what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Right. So self-control is able to control uh, our own desires. And it's not just enough to have a little (laughs) self-control. We need to be steadfast in it. Right. We need to persevere. We need to have endurance in these things. We, We keep at it. Right. Keep on moving forward in these things. And that's where we left off last week. I, I, I was reading a new commentary last, last, um, last night, and uh, I thought this was really interesting because this guy makes a statement that in my mind was part of what sparked me to want to actually deal with this passage in this little short four-week session. And I'm just going to read this quote to you. This is from Grant Osborne's commentary on Second Peter. And this is what he says. He says, in, in a generation that thinks mostly of present benefits, expecting neither future reckoning nor reward. What he's saying there is that most people in our culture live without this expectation that a day of evaluation is coming. A day of judgment is coming. Right? Um, And because of that, let me go ahead and say this, much of the production of our workforce is characterized by quick, shoddy workmanship with planned obsolescence. Right? So, we're not working to build things that last and it can endure the test of time. We, we build things that are not so great that will fall apart, so you have to buy a new one. Right? Uh, I grew up with my family in the furniture industry, and we saw this downturn. And I remember in the 1980s, my dad said uh, many of the, the old hardwood furniture manufacturing companies that we used to buy furniture from were going out of business uh, because of the things that were made out of overseas, out of plywood and press wood that were substandard. They're going to last you three years and then you've got to buy another one instead of the, the oak or walnut that you're going to buy. And you'll pass that down four or five generations. And the point is to make more money because of greed, right? need to keep on selling these things at a low cost, but we're going to sell a bunch of them. And I remember in my, in my 80s, my dad said, our economy is in severe trouble. If this trend continues, the foreign interests are going to own us, and we're going to be in severe trouble, right? My dad's not a prophet, but he got pretty close on that one, right? Uh, he says, uh, Grant Osborne goes to say, it's been reported that in one past uh, year's time, 70% of Americans had to return one or more unsatisfactory products. In the, now listen, now he contrasts this with this. In the realm of Christian living, persevering in these virtues is the willingness to take the time to build a life that is not spiritually shoddy, but one that will stand the test of daily use. That's a great insight, right? Uh, Paul, in the next word, we're about to talk about godliness here. Paul says that godliness... Um, He says that false teachers come in and they think that godliness is actually a means of gain. Having the outward appearance of godliness, but no substance in it, right? We know that very well. Think about all the TV preachers that make millions of dollars and have three or four homes, and they sound like they're teaching truth, Joel Osteen, but they're actually doing the work of Antichrist, right? Completely, I don't know that that man even knows who Jesus is. And other men like him. And they draw in these millions. And it's a means of great gain. But they've missed the whole point. 
And Paul goes on to say, godliness is actually, a, it is a great gain for it holds promise not just for this life, but also the one to come. And so these virtues that Peter is laying out here are eternal virtues. When the kingdom comes, the kingdom is going to be people populated by people who have these virtues. Right? Now, Osborne goes on to say this, uh, this then is not a grit your teeth and hang on attitude, though that may be what we will have to feel at times. This is courage to move ahead because one sees, even through tears, the promises of God bound to be realized. Just as Jesus uh, did all that He did for the joy that was set before Him, even enduring the cross. Right? Th- this is a forward-looking hope that we do these things because we know they're significant not just now, but also for the time to come. And Peter's going to touch on that here in just a second. And I thought it was really interesting that he made the analogy between you know, our disappointment with the way things work in our culture and these virtues that we have here. So here, uh, persevering in all these things is important. And then the, the last three, at the very end of verse 6, to your uh, steadfastness or long-suffering or endurance, uh, add to that godliness. Godliness to brotherly affection and brotherly affection uh, with love. Uh, godliness, that's a, that's a really interesting term. It, it, it simply means, uh, the, the old term that we used to use is piety, right? Uh, living in a way that represented the God that you claim to worship. That's what godliness is. Living a life the way God himself would live, right? Doing the things that are ultimately pleasing to God. That's, that's, uh, that's the basic idea here. And again, Paul touches on it in his letters. In fact, uh, in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, he uses that word more than any of his other letters. There's a lot of talk about godliness. Uh, so you can read through uh, his pastoral letters and you can see what Paul says about it there. Here it shows up a, a couple of times in Peter. And in this list, it's really important. Um, it's kind of right in the middle here. And again, we could talk a lot about that, but I really want to get through this whole list and look at this conclusion in the time we have left. Uh, I think that one's fairly easy to understand. Then you have brotherly affection. Y'all all know this word. This is the word Philadelphia. Love for your brothers. Love for brothers and sisters is the idea here. And so this is the, uh, this is the affection. And I, I think it's important to translate this as affection. Right? Now, this is going to sound really weird, so y'all just bear with me. But in the first century, I was reading a guy several years ago that was talking about Greek, Roman, Hebrew culture at the time in the first century. And he was making the point that, that it, most of the time within Roman culture, the husband and wife relationship was not the romantic thing that we think of today. That usually husbands and wives were together to produce a family, and they had mutual benefits to bring to one another. And so you, sometimes you could be married to somebody that you didn't feel necessarily close to, right? But this word here, Philadelphia, is brotherly affection. This is the affection that was shared among brothers and sisters in a family. And the Romans often thought about those relationships as often being more affectionate than the husband or wife relationship, right? And so here, this brotherly affection is the idea of the affection that we ought to have toward one another in the household of faith, right? We ought to have an affection for one another that that spills out into everything that we do, right? Now, I'm going to tell you what. On this list, for me, and if you're being honest with yourself, that, that one can be hard sometimes, 
right? Because we're all sinners in church, right? We're, the church is sinner rehab. That's what we're in, right? And so we're around people who are immature, who are ignorant often of truth, you know? And, and, it, and if we're honest, we ourselves are number one on the list. If you're really, you know, if you're really taking things seriously, or you, at least I think that way. And so it becomes very difficult uh, to have brotherly affection sometimes. Peter puts this next to the, to the final step on the list here. Uh, and again, we, we could say a lot about that. Yeah, this, this word shows all up all over the New Testament. In all of the lists, I think, this shows up. Paul in uh, Romans says, let brotherly affection continue and grow, right? I think he repeats it in Colossians. Peter says it uh, in his first letter. Uh, it, now here. So this brotherly affection is really important. And, and I would argue that, that this is the thing that outsiders look into and in part see Christians and they want to be part of it. Right? The early Christians, what do they say next? Look at how much they love one another. Look at how much they care for one another. And that kind of takes to this last step here. That last one, which is the real killer, love. And I'm going to tell you what, the her English translation just doesn't do justice to the word. This is the word in Greek y'all have all heard probably before. Agape. Agape. And this is this is the type of love that God has for us. This is unselfish, generous love. This is the type of love that doesn't take any account for me, necessarily, but for the person that I claim to love. This is me pouring myself out for the benefit of another. This is you pouring yourself out for the benefit of another. This, this love often comes at great expense. And at times it seems to be extravagant and even wasteful because you pour yourself out to people who don't give back in any kind of real way, right? And of course, the perfect expression of this is Jesus and the cross. <clears throat> I, I get to read a lot of different people and one of the, one of the groups that really, um, I don't know, just, it kind of gets the hair on the back of my mech, neck to stand up on times are people who come from a, a really extreme, hyper-reformed theology view, and y'all have probably heard these views before, but within that view, there, there is, there's a small group that believe that Jesus, and they teach that Jesus only died for the elect, right? That, his, that his, the spilling of his blood was not for the sins of the whole world, as 1 John says, and as Paul seems to indicate, but that his death is only for the elect, uh, uh, the chosen. And the argument that they make is, well, if he died for the whole world and, the whole, and, and, a, and a majority, a lot of people, reject that death, then that would be wasteful. And I want to get in their face and yell, and that's the point, you moron. <laughs> right? God displays his extravagant love towards all of humanity through the sacrifice of Jesus to show how unbelievably gracious and extravagant that love is. That's what grace is. Giving to people who are not going to pay back. Giving to people who are not going to necessarily even recognize it. That's a foundation of it, right? And that, that, that's what love is here. This is, I'm going to tell you what, boy, if you want to have your hair parted, and we talked about this, I think, last time I was here. 
Go read what's called the journey discourse in the Gospel of Luke. This is where Jesus is teaching his way on the way to Jerusalem. And Luke, I think, has the most powerful presentation of that because that's the place where Jesus says, listen, um, if you want to be like me, you're not just going to love the people you like. You're going to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and do good to those who return <coughs> harm. Wow. Really? We're going to follow the way of Jesus? That's what he does. That's what he calls us to. And I would sum it up with this word here. It's, it's God's extravagant, seemingly wasteful love, right? That's poured out in a way that you can't even fully get your mind around here, right? And that's what he calls us to. Notice, that's, that's the final step, right? And, and t- again, to me, that's the, that's the, that's the tough one. You know, that, that's the one that's hard. That, that one is, boy, howdy. Uh, apart from the Holy Spirit, I don't think any of us could do it naturally in and of ourselves, right? We need His help. We need this uh, divine power that's been granted to us by Jesus to actually do that very thing there. So you can see, and we talked about this, these, these, um, these seven virtues build on one another. They build up. And let me just say this. So the, this, this list, I don't think Peter intends to be, okay, get excellence in place. And, th- and when, once you've got that, then add knowledge to it. And then once you've got that in place, then right, add your uh, self-control to it. I, I don't think that's the idea. The idea is we're, we're adding to all of these as we go. One definitely supplying more to the other but this is not a thing to like a checklist okay i've got that i've got that i've got that these are all things that we ought to be growing in in fact look look at what he says next this this is the important this is kind of the punch to it verse 8 for if these qualities are yours if these things are yours and they are increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the personal knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these things not only need to be ours, right? we need to be practicing these things, but they also need to be increasing. They need to be growing. right? So we're working on adding all of these things in right, together as we go. And, and some are probably increasing more than others. right? But, but they all need to be increasing. They all need to be growing. Because the, the goal is, right? you all know the goal. The goal is that one day we should be Christ-like perfect in all these things and y'all know that's not going to happen until we see him face to face right i mean we know that but in the meantime these things ought to be present in our life and and growing um so that and boy howdy this is this is rough language right here this is keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the deep personal knowledge of the lord jesus now i don't know how your translation has it there Ineffective and unfruitful is very good. Um, but the first word is, is actually the word useless. <clears throat> Being completely useless and unfruitful in your deep knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Now I'm about to say something, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> but y'all just bear with me. Christians who don't look like this, who don't have these qualities and they're not growing them, co- completely useless to the Lord Jesus and unfruitful. In other words, you're useless to Him and it's unfruitful in your own life. Because I would suggest that if we're pursuing these things and these things are growing, 
it allows us to have the abundant life that Jesus promised us. This, this is the way to that, right? And then he goes on to say, this is the negative part of it, verse 9. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed uh, from his former sins. So see, anybody that lacks these, uh, the idea is you, you, you can't see clearly what's going on. These virtues are the things that allow us to have clarity of thought, right? There, you know, there was an old statement growing, when I was growing up, and it still kind of comes around some, right? And um, it, it's the idea of you really don't know what you're talking about until you've walked a mile in somebody else's shoes, right? And I think this is what Peter is getting at here. You don't really realize who Jesus actually is until you try to live the way he lived, in excellence, growing knowledge, right? You follow me? Because when we start to live these things out, now we get the perspective of Jesus. That's the way we have clear sight into, okay, this is how this thing is going to work, right? This is where this thing is headed. So we don't have those things. He says, you're nearsighted, maybe even blind. And then he goes on with this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and choosing. For if you... Now, I'm not even going to touch on that today, right? We don't even have time. Uh, again, Peter is very clear that, that God is the one who takes the initiative towards us and sustains us all the way through. But you can see both God's activity and our responsibility in that. So he says, for, for uh, if you practice these things, you will never fall. And in this way, now look at this, in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A rich entrance, right? Uh, these are the kind of things that we do as we pursue these things that when we finally stand before Jesus and the kingdom comes, we get to hear that, well done. Good and faithful servant, right? That ought to be our goal. We want to be pleasing to our master. We want to be pleasing to the master that bought us at the extravagant cost of his own blood. Well, how do we do that? By putting on his life, right? By, by doing the things that he did. I, I, I want to read just a parallel passage right quick to you. And you can see some overlap here. Colossians 3. Colossians 3 is a, is a passage that is some, in some ways a lot like 2 Peter, but it's got a different list of things. Oh, and even as I'm turning there, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to turn there is if you take that list of seven virtues, a helpful exercise is to think about what's the opposite of each of those virtues. What is the antonym to each of those virtues that are listed, right? So when you think about excellence, what stands opposed to excellence, right? Well, immorality, shoddiness, mediocrity. Those, we shouldn't be pursuing those things, right? Knowledge. What's the flip side of knowledge? Ignorance, right? Inexperience is one, right? Not learning from our experiences which leads to ignorance, right? Which is all founded in idolatry. Idolatry leads to ignorance, and ignorance leads to injustice. That, that's the biblical pattern you see all the way through. Self-control, what's the opposite? Self-indulgence, excessiveness. Right? It's, it's the false teachers in 2 uh, Peter chapter 2. If you read through that list, they are the contrary to everything that Peter lists here. What's the opposite of perseverance? Doubt, hopelessness faithlessness, right? We persevere because we know something better is coming. 
And you don't persevere because you don't have hope. Or you're faithless. Or I think an even better word is disloyalty. People who are being, who don't practice perseverance are being disloyal to the Lord Jesus. That's a, ah, mess your head up for a little bit. Godliness, contrary, wickedness, shamefulness, sinfulness, right? You, so you, you can go through there and see that list. And the reason I bring that up is this parallel passage in Colossians 3, Paul says a very similar thing, right? Uh, similar idea, different words. I'm just going to read some of this. Colossians 3.1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you too will also appear with Him in glory. Notice how the motivation for life now is set towards seeing Jesus in His glory. He's going to come. And we're going to be revealed with Him in His glory. So verse 5, he says, So put to death, therefore, uh, all that uh, is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is actually idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And you walked in all of these. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So then, verse 12, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. Very similar list. If, if you look at it and you compare these things that, that Peter's saying and what Paul's saying here. Bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Not you may choose to forgive, so you must forgive. You cannot claim the forgiveness of Jesus and not offer it to others. Not a possibility, right? In fact, if you do that, you really, you, it shows that you're blind and nearsighted. You don't really know what's happened, right? Verse 14, and above all of these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See that? Last on the list. Put on love, and love binds everything else together. Same thing Peter does. Love is last on the list. I've often wondered, has Peter read Colossians? Because there's difficult things in Colossians. Chapter, chapter 1 has some thorn thickets in it that are difficult to get out of when you see what Paul says there. And I've often wondered, has Peter read Colossians? And now he's given his version of it right in this thing. But I want you to see the parallel here, uh, how important it is to put on the life of Jesus. It's absolutely critical. Not only for us, but also for the world that's looking in. You know, at the end of 1 Peter, he says, uh, always be ready to give in a defense of the hope that you have within us. I have within you, right? Uh, be ready to do that. I, I want to I end out, and I'll see if I've got any questions here, that... Um, there is an article that I read several years ago, and it, it is a uh, it is a um, it, it is meant to get get you thinking about things. and And the um, article is called "There's No Such Thing as Objective Truth," 
And the article is about how we within Christianity have spent a lot of time arguing for truth, the, the, the vague idea of truth, but not actually living truth out in our day-to-day lives. And he says this, this is what has made the voice of the church irrelevant in modern culture. And at the end of that article, he says this, and I think this is so powerful here. He says, uh, the church has a word to speak to the world because it embodies an alternative politics, an alternative way of ordering human life made possible by Jesus Christ. All these things that we've just read over here. Can you legislate unselfish, generous love? Can you legislate brotherly affection? Can you legislate endurance? person? Right. So, so we have something that transcends all of these man-made human uh, edifices and organizations and institutions, right? Now, this is, he goes on to say this. The central practices and virtues of such a community, practices and virtues which embody, even if imperfectly, the character of the God it serves are such things as forgiveness, reconciliation, peacemaking, patience. And he goes on to list some of the things that Peter has here, right? Now, listen to this. This is, oh, this, to me, I think he gets right to the heart of the matter here. He says, what our world is waiting for and what the church seems reluctant to offer is not more incessant talk about objective truth, but an embodied witness that clearly demonstrates why anyone should care about any of these things in the first place. In other words, he's saying we don't need to keep on arguing about truth. We need to live it out. And in living it out, we will prove to people why these things are important, right? Now listen to this. I I ain't even reading this out loud. Lord, the fact that most of our non-Christian neighbors cannot pick us out from the rest of their non-Christian neighbors, or if they can, what makes us pick outable are matters relatively incidental to the gospel, suggests that they are right in refusing to accept what we say we believe, but which our lives make a lie. We say we believe one thing and we practice something else, right? This, to me, this is what concerns me most about the times in which we're living. Social media and people having a voice that's unfettered. In the last two or three years, I've seen people who claim to be Christians say things online about other people that I'm sure the devil himself was like, man, I couldn't even come up with something that good, right? And these people are claiming publicly to be Christians and acting in a way contrary to who Jesus actually is, not in affection and love and so forth, right? And then he, he goes on to say this, what will lend our testimony authority is that by the grace of God, we live in such a way that our lives are incomprehensible apart from this God. Stacy, why are you a person who pursues excellence in everything. Harlan, why are you a person that pursues excellence when you don't have to? Why do you persevere in wanting to know and grow in knowledge? All of you, right? Why do you all persevere? Why do you persevere in self-control? Why don't you do what you want to do, right? All the rest of us are doing it. Why do you endure in all of these things? Why are you pursuing a godliness, right, in a culture that has pretty much given up on all those things? Just do whatever, right? Brotherly affection. Why would you pour out your life for me when you get no benefit from it, right? So you can't explain that apart from 
I do these things because this is what the God that we worship has done for us. And that makes him real. That makes him real, right? I remember hearing a story years ago about uh, a lady who had come to, uh, to the church and she said, listen, I want to find out more about Christianity. Uh, I think I may want to become a believer. And the guy that was talking to her said, well, what got you here in the first place? She said, well, I work for a large company and uh, I work on a team and our team made a disastrous era uh, that cost this company millions of dollars. And she said, the, the, the guy, the, the, my, my supervisor who was over our team uh, called our team together a week ago in a meeting. And he said, listen, y'all, this is bad. This is really bad. Somebody's going to have to take the fall for it. And he said, but I want y'all to know, y'all don't have to worry about anything. I'm the one who is leading this team. I should have caught it. Uh, I'm the one who's going to take the heat. Y'all don't have to worry about your jobs. And he said, and I want, you to, I want you to understand why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I worship Jesus, and this is what he did for me. So I have to do it for you. And she said to this guy, I don't know who that Jesus is, but I want to know. I want to know. Why? Because somebody was living like Jesus. It's not enough to talk about truth. It's not enough to talk about Christ's likeness. It's not enough to just say all these things that come out of the middle of nowhere. We have to be people who embody the reality of who Jesus is in everything we do. And y'all, let's all pray together. (laughs) Because in the United States in 2023, in Memphis, Tennessee, very difficult. Everything's standing against us, right? World raging against us. And apart from God's divine power and Holy Spirit, we were, it would be impossible for us to do these things. But that's what Second Peter's calling us to do, to be people who live out that truth, live out the very reality of who Jesus is. And as we do that, our friends and neighbors get a taste of him, and maybe they'll say, I want to know who that Jesus is. Right? All right, y'all. Uh, Jimmy's going to close us out with prayer. We're, we're over time. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and let him close us out, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. Thanks a lot, y'all. It's been great to be with you. Look forward to seeing y'all again.